0: Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Briam Bible Church. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this little book that was written by Yehuda, who was the half-brother of Yeshua. It's a very important little book. He's warning the church to battle for the truth in a world of apostasy, a world of spiritual defection. I think this is a word that the church today desperately needs to hear. The church today is full of apostasy. I mean, they have departed from the Scripture. Departed from the truth. The word apostasy is from the Greek word apostasia. It means defection from the truth. To fall away. It's a rebellion against God because it's a rebellion against truth. Now, in the Tanakh, God warned the Jewish people about their idolatry and their lack of trust in Him. And in the New Testament, the epistles warn us about not falling away from the truth. Apostasy is a very real, and dangerous threat. And Jude urges those in the body of Christ to contend earnestly for the faith. He says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write about our common salvation, Jude sits down to write, I'm going to write a letter about salvation. And he says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, the Greek here, contend earnestly, is a compound verb from which we get our word agonize. It's in the present infinitive form, which means that the struggle will be continuous. There's not a time we sit back and say, oh, that's cool, we can relax. In other words, Jude is telling us that there's going to be a constant fight against false teaching and that Christians should take it seriously, that they are to agonize over this fight that we are engaged in. Jude makes it clear that every Christian is called to this fight. It's not just church leaders, not pastors. Every Christian is called to be familiar, so familiar with the Word of God that when they hear error, flags start going up. Jude tells us how to spot these apostates in verse 4. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua, the Christ. These men have crept in unnoticed. In other words, people, they don't show up to church and say, Hi, I'm an apostate. I'd like to take over and corrupt your faith. Alright? They slip in. They look good. And remember Paul, in Acts chapter 20, warned the Ephesian elders. He said, After my departure, grievous wolves shall come in among you, speaking to the elders, not sparing the flock. They're going to come in, they're going to become elders the, and be a part of the ministry. That's a good way to destroy things, isn't it? Get in the leadership, corrupt the thing. They try to blend in. They try to look spiritual. You know, Paul really tells us, the same. he told the same thing to the Corinthians, 2 the Corinthians. He said this, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now, the word here, disguising, metaschematizo, words used five times in the New Testament, the connotation in all five refers to the act of assuming an outward expression that does not come from within. All right? They're assuming this outward thing, but it's not inward. They're putting on a front. They were not who they appeared to be. In other words, don't look for apostates to appear bad on the outside and come in, you know, saying, "Uh, I got a bunch of heresy I want you all to learn. No, they come in and they just try to blend in. They don't deny truth outright. They twist it slowly, carefully to fit their agenda. Jews said that apostates are ungodly persons who turned the grace of our god into licentiousness the word turn here is from the greek metatithēmi from meta meaning change of place or condition and tithēmi meaning to put in place it literally means to put in another place so they take the grace of god and they put it in another place where it doesn't belong these false teachers may have been judaizers who turning the grace of god into works He also says they deny our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. You know, this doesn't mean that they come out and said, I don't think Jesus is the Christ. You can deny Christ in a lot of ways. You can deny Christ by your conduct. And this is one thing about false teachers, about apostates. There's usually immorality connected with that. Alright? Because they say, well, it's not really wrong, and I'm a leader, and everything's okay. You know? Somehow... It seems like, I don't know how many pastors I know who have out of the ministry because of immorality, but they justify it. They took their leadership as a as an excuse, basically, to get involved in this. Well, how do we spot an apostate? I mean, if they kind of come, they sneak in, they blend in. How do we spot one? How do we know if a man is dangerous, or how do we know if someone's just misguided? All right? What are we to guard for? Well, apostate can be a falling away from key and true doctrines of Scripture, into heretical teachings, or it can just be a departure from morality. And I think, you know, here's the thing, we we can't, we're not going to label everybody an apostate who doesn't agree with us, okay, hopefully, you know, we're not going to do that, all right, we're not going to get, you know, nitpicky about little things, Uh, hopefully we've learned that, you know, we've been wrong on a lot of things, so we're still learning, we're still growing, so we accept other people. But they're key doctrines we're not going to bend on. All right, the Christ, the deity of Christ. All right, is something he is Yahweh. All right, when people come up and say when they want to question this, okay, we don't we don't need to even be dealing with that. All right, but we want to be careful. I mean, we don't want to again everybody that you know that we don't agree with, you know, is an apostate. That's that's not that's not true. And there's many you know people out there, good people who are trying their best. They just don't understand some things. And so they're teaching things that maybe aren't really accurate, but it's not because they're not trying. They just have to be informed. All right? So like I said, it's also, though, a falling away from morality. They can excuse and they can justify sin. In 2010, a study was done by a prominent atheist. You know there's prominent atheists. Daniel Dennett and Linda LaScola and The study was called Preachers Who Are Not Believers. Danette and LaScola's work chronicles five different preachers who over time were presented with and accepted heretical teaching about Christianity and now have completely fallen away from the faith and are either pantheists or secret atheists. One of the most disturbing truths highlighted in the study is that the preachers maintain their position as pastors of Christian churches. So they don't believe the Christian doctrine anymore. They've totally fallen away, but they stay in the church. It's, they're making a good living. What the heck, you know? So they stay there and continue to teach. And so, you know, like, like I said, this is so important for the church today because it's so the church is so corrupt today with false teaching. You know, one of the you know I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I called John Hagee an apostate. Right, I don't do that lightly, okay? but I think he is an apostate. When you take the gospel and twist it and you know, make it what it's not even to be, I think that's apostasy. But he's one of the largest apostates in the country. I'm not talking about his physicals. So I mean just you know, the attendants you know, of his church, the people that listen to this man. All right, He's huge, got a huge following. And that just makes it all the more dangerous. You know? All right, today we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 where Jude moves from the history. He's been talking about the history of apostates. He's been dealing with that really since verse 5, describing these apostates. Well, he moves now into the natural world, and he gives us five analogies of apostates. This is kind of strange, because Jude's always been dealing with triplets, triads, over and over. And so many men have tried to take this, these five analogies and stretch six into it. You know, this is make it triads. And maybe there is here, but it just seems like he's giving us five analogies. This is a diatribe and metaphors to describe the heirs of apostates. He's describing those who threaten the peace, the purity of the church. And he seems to follow Enoch's description point for point, which is really interesting. That's why last week we talked about the book of Enoch. And we if you didn't get that, you need to get that because we're going to be talking about that you know, next week also. But you know, hes that's why I did it before I got to these verses because he uses, you know, Jude seems to really lean on Enoch, which bothers a lot of people, but he did it. Get over it, all right? He did it, all right? We just have to see what does that mean to us, all right? All right, he gives us five analogies. He talks about hidden reefs in your love feast in verse 12. He talks about clouds without water. He talks about autumn trees without fruit. And he talks about wild waves of the sea. And then he talks about wandering stars. So he's giving us these metaphors. Now, Robertson McQuillican cautions us on metaphors. He says this. He says, picture talk. It's one of the greatest problems of interpretation. To treat figurative language as if it were literal and treat literal language as if it were figurative constitute two of the greatest hindrances to understanding the meaning of the Bible. I agree. We've got to be careful when we're dealing with metaphors. you know. And to me, this is what the dispensationalists do. They take the figurative language And they treat it as literal. Yes, it's really going to be locusts coming up out of the pit and helicopters. I don't know how they get literal helicopters, but all all this stuff. And then they take the literal didactic stuff, time statements, and they say means thousands of years. You know, and that's what we have to be careful of doing. But see, they it's not really lining up with this totally because they're taking didactic literature and making it figurative. Alright, he's warning of metaphors. Be careful when you take pictures that you don't stretch it too far. Alright, Jude says, he starts out by saying, these are the men. Now he goes back to verse 4. These are the men. These are the certain men that crept in unnoticed. It is these men of verse 8. It's these men of verse 10 that Jude talks about. That Jude says in verse 11, woe to them. He's pronouncing judgment on these men. These are the men and he's going to describe them. He says, they're like hidden reefs in your love feast. Now, the Greek word translated here as hidden reefs is spilos. It actually refers to a rock in the sea, a ledge or a reef which is hidden under the water. Homer, in the Odyssey, uses spilos when he writes, the waves dash the ship against the rock, Spilas. Now, this is a metaphor that I, as a boater, really understand. OK, believe me, unless water is crystal clear, like Kim and Thea have down in the Keys. All right. Where they live. You got to be careful because you're going across the water. It looks good. Looks nice. You can't see what's there. And all of a sudden you hit something, especially the water here where we boat in the intercoastal waterway. The water looks like coffee. All right. I mean, you can see maybe three, four inches deep, you know, and that's the end of it. So you don't know what's out there. And there's been many a times, you know, when we have limped back because things were broken, because we hit things. You know, we were at a Pongo and my wife was driving. I, it wasn't really her fault, but she was driving, you know. Just give, trying to give you all the details here. She hit a, she hit a stump, and it, bro, it broke a blade off a propeller. So I got a four-blade propeller with three blades. that doesn't run real good. You're talking about vibration. You know, just recently we were out in the intercoastal, and I was not paying attention. I got too close to the side and all of a sudden, bang, bang, you know, and we're like, oh my word, you can't see what's under there. And I heard a friend who tell me they were on a lake and they were buzzing across this lake. They were oh, doing about 35 miles an hour and they hit a rock that was beneath the surface. It didn't hit their boat, but it hit their outdrive, tore the outdrive right off the boat. Now when your outdrive leaves, you got a big hole. So the boat starts to sink, okay? So I understand this metaphor. This is dangerous, people. If you can't see it, that's dangerous. These men are like reefs. They're like rocks in the sea. They're submerged. They're invisible. They're beneath the surface. But they're very deadly. They're dangerous. This metaphor, I think, suggests at least two characteristics of these men. They're concealed, and they present a real spiritual danger to the unwary. You gotta be, you gotta know where you're going. And listen, in the intercoastal, the only way to be safe is you stay in the channel. Alright, there's channel markers. You stay in that channel and you're safe. You get out of there, whatever can happen. Alright? My wife got out of the channel one day and I was standing in the boat she was driving and we hit a sandbar. And when you're moving along about 20, 30 miles an hour and you hit it. I know, you're right. You hit a sandbar and it's like, it hurts when you hit, cause your body moves, keeps, you know, the boat stops and you keep going. So you're hitting things and it's, it's not a real comfortable thing. But stay in the markers, alright? And the same is true with us. We stay in the boundaries of Scripture. We're not going to hit these hidden rocks. We've got to be careful. I think Jude's picture also recalls the disciples at the Last Supper with Yeshua where none of the disciples had a clue about Judas. You know, they didn't know he was a betrayer. They thought he was one of them. And we may come across one of these false teachers, and we've got to be aware. And I'll tell you, listen, the way we are aware is to know the Scripture. That's the whole key. Alright, he says, there are hidden reefs in your love feasts. You've heard of a love feast? Anybody heard of that before? It's, it's really common. This is the only place you're going to find it in Scripture in the sense of laid out like this. But what's really funny here is the word here for love feasts is agape or agape, alright? Um, feast is not even there. It's love. It's just hidden reefs in your love, basically, is what it says. But then it says, when they feast... So, you know, they connect the feast there into that word and they make it love feast. So they kind of put some words together and put this together. But the love feast was something that went on in the early church. William Barclay says this, and by the way, I've told you this before, but when I quote Barclay, Barclay is an excellent historian. He's a neo-Orthodox. He's a liberal. You know, some of the stuff he says is whacked. Okay. So, you know, he's not into the supernatural at all. When Yeshua walked on water, he says there was exceptionally dense Lily pads in that area. (laughs) Okay. And that's easier for you to believe. (laughs) Some people do anything to get away from the supernatural. All right. So, but Barclay is an excellent historian. So I quote him as a historian. He says, the love feast, the agape, was one of the earliest features of the church. It was a meal of fellowship held on the Lord's day. To it, everyone brought what he could and all shared alike. It was a lovely idea that the Christians in each little house church should sit down on the Lord's Day to eat in fellowship together. No doubt there were some who could bring much and others who could bring only a little. For many of the slaves, it was perhaps the only decent meal they ever ate. But very soon the agape began to go wrong. We can see it going wrong in the church at Corinth when Paul declares that at the Corinthian love feast there was nothing but division. And I think that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, But in giving this instruction... I do not praise you because you come together. Now, the coming together here is a coming together to worship. Not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. So when they came together for the agape, it ended up being anything but love. Okay? It was a self-feast. He goes on in verse 20 to say, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? So, okay, he's focusing in on the supper here, but look what he says. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. So, he, he's talking about more than having the elements together here, people. He's talking about, and this is where we, they get the idea that they were having, they'd come together for the Lord's Supper, but they'd have a meal together. They'd sit down, they'd eat, they'd partake of the Lord's Supper. It was a, a whole thing that was all connected together. He says, Do you not ha- have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. See, there were so many slaves in the church at that time, and they were poor. Well, the rich people came and brought their food, and they eat it. Slaves get there, and they're like, sorry, you guys missed out. You know, and they're drunk, and so it just was a divided into cliques, into factions. Some were going away hungry. Others were going away gluttonous. The Holman Bible Dictionary states this by the second century, the word agape had become a technical term for such a common meal, which seems to have been separated from the ceremonial observance of the Lord's Supper sometime after the New Testament period. Now, eventually, so many problems accompanied this feast that the Council of Carthage, that took place in 397, strictly forbid it. <laughs> I read that and I laugh. Okay, we have the church council. Right? No more love feasts. I just, you know, it blows my mind. Okay, you can't do that anymore. Because someone messed it up, so no one does it. That's uh, weird. Okay, but anyway, that's what the council decided. It's too messed up. You guys can't do it anymore. I'm sure there were some rebel churches that snuck it in anyway. <laughs> We'd have been one of them. <laughs> Alright, well that, from what Paul has to say, and what, you know, it, it, to the Corinthians, and then what the Council of Carthage had to say, obviously they didn't heed Paul's warning and they just kept on, you know, having it messed up anyway. Alright, he goes, when they feast with you without fear. Uh, when they feast with you is actually one Greek word. It's sunio, echo, and it means to feast, to banquet, to have a party, to socialize. It's a present tense participle which portrays these men's practice of turning a love feast into occasion for personal feasting as an ongoing thing. They did it without fear. In other words, it didn't bother them a bit, and it doesn't matter. Now, if you've got the New American Standard, it says this, caring for themselves. That's a bad translation. I mean, it really is. Because you know what the Greek word here is? The Greek word here is poimeno. Does that ring a bell to anybody? What's poimeno mean? Poimeno means to shepherd or pastor. So the ESV has a right. They says this shepherds feeding themselves. Is that what a shepherd's supposed to do? No. Jude's use of this verb poimeno may suggest that these false guys who snuck in and they were masquerading as shepherds or leaders. And again, that's what Paul says in Acts 20. All right. The love feast was designed for people to care for each other. It was a time of shepherding when you sat around and talked and encouraged one another and supported one another and lifted up one another. But these men were in it for themselves. I think Jude might have got this metaphor from Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel 34.2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? So Jude is saying, basically, Ezekiel is saying here what Jude said in verse 11, Woe to the apostates! Feeding sheep is a common metaphor for teaching the people the Word of God. And they weren't doing it. Well, the next metaphor Jude gives us is their clouds without water carried along by the winds. Now, this metaphor and the next three all seem to come from the book of Enoch. This is why I talked, like I said, about Enoch last week. Verses 12 and 13 are allusions from Enoch. Verses 14 and 15 are a quote from Enoch. I want to read to you 1 Enoch 80, where several of these metaphors come from. See if you can pick them out. All right? 1 Enoch 80, 1 through 8. And in those days the angel Uriel answered and said to me, Behold, I have shown thee everything, Enoch, and I have revealed everything to thee that shouldest see this sun and this moon and the leaders of the stars of the heaven. Now, I want you to take note of that. Just hang on to that for later. The leaders of the stars of the heaven and all those who turn them, their task and times and departures. And in the days of the sinners and years shall be shortened and their seed shall be tardy on the land and fields and the things on the earth shall alter and shall not appear in their time and the rain shall be kept back and the heaven shall withhold. So these, are, we got clouds without water in June. Here we got rain. This is going to be kept back. And in those times, the fruits of the earth shall be backward. That sounds like what he's going to say about trees without fruit, double dead, plucked up by the roots. He says, and shall not grow in their time, and the fruits of the trees shall be withheld in their time. And the moon shall alter her order. Now, get, get this here. The moon's going to alter her order, and and not appear at her time. And in those days the sun shall be seen, and he shall journey in the evening on the extremity of the great chariot in the west, and shall shine more brightly than accords, and with the order of light. And many chiefs of the stars shall transgress the order prescribed. So we got some stars here wandering, okay, that Jude's going to mention And these shall alter their orbits and tasks and not appear at the season prescribed to them. And the whole order of the stars shall be concealed from the sinners. And the thoughts of these on the earth shall err concerning them. And they shall be altered from their ways. Yea, they shall err and take them to be gods. And evil shall be multiplied upon them and punishment shall come upon them as to destroy all. So in verse 2, Enoch says, And the rain shall be kept back and the heavens shall withhold. And Jude says they're clouds without water, carried along without with winds. All right? The interpretation of this metaphor, I think, is pretty straightforward. You've all seen, you know, the clouds, the sky get real dark, and dark rain clouds, especially when you're having a drought or something, and here comes these clouds, and you're excited, and nothing. They just blow right by, not a drop. You know, especially if you're a farmer, and you're counting, especially if you're a farmer in California, and you're counting on rain, and you get Nothing. You know, they look good. There's nothing there. And these these apostates, you know, they have an air of authority about themselves. They offer hope to the church that they can bring some refreshing rain. But they don't. You know, rain is a metaphor in Scripture for the blessing of God coming down from heaven. They don't have any rain. They got nothing. Water is also used in Scripture basically three different ways. It's use of real water, you know, H2O. It's used of analogy to represent something else like salvation in Isaiah 55.1. Ho everyone in thirst. Come to the waters. You have no money. Come and buy. You buy without money. That's pretty cool. You know, the salvation, it's free. It's also used in the, of the word of God in Ephesians 5.26. He says, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word. So they're, they're supposed to be bringing this blessing, but they bring nothing. Proverbs 25.14 says, the clouds and wind without rain. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Get the picture there. Nothing. There's nothing there. They promise to bring the blessing of God. They don't bring anything. You know, and this today again reminds me of the Health Wealth teachers. If you just believe this, you'll never get sick. You'll be wealthy. It's a pyramid scheme and it works for those at the top. Because you've got to give your seed money to them. Now, if you could get somebody under you to give seed money to you, you might get wealthy. You're not going to get healthy, but you might get wealthy. But it's a, just a lie. It's deception. There's nothing. It's empty. And it's devastating. You know, there's a doctor who wrote that book, A Physician in Search of a Miracle. He followed Catherine Coleman around for years. He was serious. He just wanted to know, is there really something to this? And what he discovered was the people who got healed on stage and got up and walked and did something for a brief time. After the thing, they were back in their wheelchairs. He said many, many of these people committed suicide. Because after it was over, they said, God's abandoned me. I got nothing. And they killed themselves over it. So, you know, there's, this is dangerous stuff, people. It's not just, you know, some preachers promising some nonsense. There's, there's more to it. They're, they're putting people's faith in jeopardy because they're putting it in the wrong place. These apostates are a hidden danger. That's the idea of the reefs. And they offer false promises. That's the idea of the clouds. They're coming around. They're just it's false. And next he says they're barren. He says they're like autumn trees without fruit, double dead, uprooted. <laughs> you get that picture? That is a clear picture, isn't it? They're, they're double dead. All right? What's a tree look like in the winter? You got a fruit tree, what happens in the winter? Does it look dead? There's nothing on it. There's leaves, it's barren. You don't know if it's dead or alive. These are double dead. In other words, they're pulled up. They're uprooted. Now, if a tree's uprooted, people, it's not going to do anything. Okay? There's no fruit going to come out of it. And that's the whole idea. There's nothing coming out of this. Yeshua said of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 13, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. That's a dead tree. When it's uprooted, it's done. Okay? They don't produce any life-changing fruit, and they never will is what he's saying. They're dead, double dead. This illusion also comes from Enoch. Enoch 80, verse 3, says, The fruits of the trees shall be withheld in their time. And so Jude is just following Enoch's order from here, from chapter 80. The next metaphor Jude gives us is in verse 13. He says, They're wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame. Now, this doesn't, we can't find this in chapter 80 of Enoch, but some say it comes from uh, chapter 67, verse 5. It says, and silver and iron and soft metal and tin. And I saw that valley in which there was a great convulsion, a convulsion of the waters. And when all this took place from that fiery molten metal and from the convulsion thereof in that place, there was produced a smell of sulfur. And it was connected with those waters and that valley of the angels who had led astray mankind. So here we got angels that are led astray mankind. They're burned beneath that land. And very, very descriptive. He goes on to say angels are punished who had led astray those who dwell on the earth. Now that's not really connected with what we're talking about with Jude, but hang on to that. We're going to get to it, all right? So for Enoch, these waves seem to be waves of judgment. And Jude says, waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. This could be speaking the way, you know, there's a lot of question about what exactly exactly is he trying to tell us here. Well, this is a picture of instability. It could be a picture of judgment. You know, you ever been out to the water and it's flat and calm and beautiful and peaceful, and you ever been in the middle of a storm? I mean, it's it can get ugly. When I was in the Navy, I did several North Atlantic cruises. When we were in the North Atlantic in the winter, and not a good time to be there, was storms so bad that where they were breaking up the Navy ships, Spruance class destroyer, cracks appearing, things breaking. So we had to change course to get out of the storm because it was so bad. Instability. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 57 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and mud you ever gone on the beach after a storm, all the trash is all over the place. He says there is no peace says my God for the wicked to have no peace is to be under judgment because there's peace in the Lord. The men that Jude talks about were wicked men, and they have no peace. Then Jude gives us a final metaphor. He says, wandering stars from the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, most commentators see this referring to a shooting star. Stars don't wander, okay? And so they just see this. Well, this is a shooting star. Kaufman, in his commentary, likens this to false teachers, to shooting stars, or meteorites, he says. He says, they blaze in the night sky and then fall into darkness. And, you know, okay, yeah, that that could sound right. But the problem is Jude is using allusions from Enoch. So let's go to Enoch and see what Enoch has to say. In 86-80 he says, And many chiefs of the stars shall transgress the order prescribed. Here's we got stars, they're wandering, they're leaving. He says, and these shall alter their orbits and tasks and not appear at the seasons prescribed to them. And the whole order of the stars shall be concealed from sinners. And the thoughts of those on the earth shall err concerning them. And they shall be altered from their ways, he goes. And they shall err and take them to be gods. And evil shall be multiplied upon them and punishment shall come upon them so as to destroy all. The wandering stars, I think, that Jude speaks of is a very common ancient Jewish idiom in both the Tanakh and the Pseudepigrapha, as we saw in Enoch, for divine celestial beings. When they talk about stars, or they talk about the host of heaven. They're not talking about what we think of stars. They're talking about deities. In the ancient world, the stars were called the hosts of heaven. They were equated with deities. In the Tanakh, the stars of heaven are also called heavenly hosts. And they're likened to pagan deities. Now, look what uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.19. And beware not to lift up your eyes. He's talking to Israel. Beware, don't lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, and the stars. All the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Don't Listen, Israelites, don't you go worship those hosts of heaven. Now that, okay, you're saying, eh, all right, but he's talking about stars. They're just worshiping the star. No, they're worshiping the deity behind the star. Now watch what he says those referring to the host of heaven the stars those which yahweh your god has allotted to the peoples under the whole earth in other words those deities are for the gentiles to worship those people israel my people you worship me all right this goes back to genesis chapter 10 the table of nations you know, where, where Yahweh said, listen, I'm going to give these nations over to these false deities and let the, these lesser deities rule over these nations. Deuteronomy 32, same thing. Those Elohim belong to the nations. Israel was not to worship them. And First Enoch likens these fallen angelic watchers to imprisoned stars. He says in chapter 18, and to me, when I inquired regarding him, the angel said, This place is the end of heaven and earth. This has become a prison for the stars and the hosts of heaven. Now, what are we going to take? Stars and put them in jail? L- literal stars? No, he's talking about fallen deities. And the stars which roll over the fire area which they have transgressed, the commandment of the Lord in the beginning. Alright, so these stars are transgressing The commandment of, I think he's referring here back to Genesis chapter 6 and the sons of God and the daughters of men. They're rising because they did not come forth at their appointed times. And he was wroth with them and bound them till the time when their guilt should be consummated, even for 10,000 years. So Jude uses the exact same description we see in Enoch 67 of those angels who debauch their bodies. They deny the Lord. And this repetitious theme of fleshly defilement and rejection of authority are traits of these angels who did not keep their own say And they're traits of these apostates. William Barclay writes, <coughs> the wicked men are like the wandering stars that are kept in the abyss of darkness for their disobedience. This is a picture directly taken from the book of Enoch. In that book, the stars and the angels are sometimes identified and there's a picture of the fake uh, the fate of the stars who, disobedient to God, left their appointed orbit and were destroyed. So the fate of the wandering stars is typical of the fate of the men who disobey Yahweh's commands. They are judged. So these false teachers, they were deceptive. They were dangerous. Because they blended in with at every Christian event that they had. Their motive were selfish. They were superficial. They made a lot of empty promises. They were unstable. There was no true spiritual life there so he gives us in these two verses these analogies and they're not pretty pictures at all no matter how you you know how you bend them they're not a very pretty picture now what i want you to see here now is a contrast all right jude's been talking about historical judgments he's been talking about apostates about characteristics of apostates in verses 12 and 13 gives us these five metaphors it's not pretty and then he says this in the next verse it was also about these men in Enoch. Let's stop right there. You go from apostates to Enoch. The contrast couldn't be stronger. These apostates are doing everything wrong. Enoch is a super Christian. Okay? This is an incredible man. Clement says this of Enoch. He says, "Let us let us set before us Enoch who being found righteous in obedience was translated, and his death was not found. Now, we looked last week briefly at Enoch. We saw that he's only mentioned three times in the Word of God. We read about this Enoch. There's another Enoch. All right, We're talking about this one. This, the one in Genesis 5, the one who didn't die. The one who was translated. We read about him in Genesis 5. We read about Hebrews 11. We read about him in the book of Jude. Now, if you look at chapter 5, and you begin at verse 1 and you start reading down, Eight times you read these words, and he died, and he died, in the genealogy, and he died. And you get to Enoch, and it says, and he was not. He didn't die. He was not. He just was gone, okay? He just disappeared. Gone. But it says this twice, Enoch walked with God. Literally, Enoch walked with Elohim. That's pretty significant, people. This is Genesis five. The law hadn't been given at Sinai, but obviously Yahweh was communicating with men because here's a man who walked with Yahweh. Walked with him. And you, when we get, you know, some people argue here and they say, well, the language was not was, is also used of death, and this could mean that he died. Well, the only problem I have with that is a big problem. It's Hebrews eleven five that says by faith Enoch you know, was taken up so that he would not see death. Alright, and this is under inspiration, so we don't need to argue about those. And he says, and he was not found because God took him up. And he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So, Enoch is taken up. Now the word here, metatithemi, we already looked at this word, it means to put in another place. Now Hang on to that. Enoch was put in another place. Why was he put in another place? Because he was pleasing to God. Enoch is the only man, apart from Yeshua, who the Scriptures say pleased God. This is a significant individual, people. This is why you know pe- the, the, the Jewish culture was pretty enamored by this man. This is why there's the books of, of Enoch, because this was an individual that was very unique. Well, what was pleasing to God about him? Well, I think the next verse of Hebrews tells us. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So you can't please God without faith, but Enoch pleased God. So guess what? Enoch was a man of faith. The word please here is steo, and it means to gratify completely, to please. The words used three times in the New Testament, all of them in Hebrews 11. Enoch pleased Yahweh. That's an incredible phrase, people. He pleased God. Look what uh, verse 16 says. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Wow, focus on that for a minute, people. Think about that for a minute. Yahweh is pleased by our faith and by our doing good and sharing. When we minister somebody in need, we're like a priest offering up a spiritual sacrifice to Yahweh. That's pretty significant, people. That's pretty significant. So I would say that Enoch was a man of faith who ministered to those in need of his day and was very pleasing to Yahweh. He's a man of faith. He walked with God and God took him. Now think about this. If you took somebody, if you had this ability, to take somebody from a different place, a different realm, if you would, because you had fellowship with them and because they were pleasing to you. You enjoyed your fellowship with this person. They pleased you. So you took them. Where would you take them? What? Where would you take them, John? <laughs> Wouldn't you take them to be with you? I'm walking in fellowship. I'm having a great time fellowshiping. Man, I'm really enjoying this. I think I'll take you. Take you some, I'm going to stick you off here somewhere in the corner. No. I'm going to take them to be with you. What else would you do with them? Why would you take them from a place or a realm if not to be with yourself? So don't believe some idiot preacher who says to you that Enoch didn't go to heaven. You know who that idiot preacher is? (laughs) <laughs> I'm talking about myself because that's what I said last week, okay? And listen, I attempted to prove it with a spoof text. You know what a spoof text is? When people are giving you a view, all right, here's my view, da, da, da. I, they use what's called proof text. In other words, I give you a text to prove what I'm saying. When the text they give you doesn't really prove their point, it's called a spoof text, Okay? Because it really doesn't fit. It's not what they're trying to say at all. All Alright? And they say this verse doesn't prove it. Here's the verse I use. No one has ascended up to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Alright. That was last week. Okay? This week. Today. After further studying. After further studying this verse in context. After further meditation on Enoch walking with God and being not. I'm like, it doesn't make any sense that God would take him and just not have him in his own presence. The reason he took him is because he was enjoying his fellowship. But you say, well, this verse sounds like nobody went to heaven, right? This is why I always tell you, do not believe what I say. Be a Berean. Study it out for yourself. Okay, really. I mean, you've got to do it. You've got to check things out yourself. Here's the, here's the problem. I've never taught through the book of John. So when you go picking verses out, you don't know the whole context. You haven't studied the context. You get in trouble. All right? That's what I love about teaching verse by verse. I come across verses. I'm like, ah, I've used this verse all my life. doesn't have anything to do with what I said it always meant. <laughs> it's amazing when you put it in context what it does. It just changes everything. But the negative part is you've got to teach things maybe you don't want to teach because it's there and you just got to deal with the text. Or you could do like some commentators. They just skip it. I mean, I go to difficult texts at times. I'm looking to come. Nothing there. It's like, oops, forgot about that. You know, come on, just say I don't understand what this means. At least put a comment in there, okay? Well, let's look at this verse in context for a minute. What's happening in John chapter three? You know John three, right? What happens? Someone comes to Yeshua. Who is it? Nicodemus. He says, Hey, we know, we know you're, a, you come from God because no one could do this stuff unless you know God is with them. And so Yeshua said, Well, you got to be born again. What? How do I be born again? How can as a man go back in my month? I don't get that. How does it work? All right. And so Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Yeshua answered and said to him, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one ascended up into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Now, no one ascended to heaven, he says, but the Son of Man. Did the Son of Man ascend to heaven? Not at this point, right? He did descend from heaven, right? He's talking about spiritual things here. He's talking about the knowledge of God here. And Yeshua is saying, that's not obtained by man going up to heaven to receive it. No one goes up to heaven and gets this knowledge. No one has ascended, but the person who has come down from heaven, I'm revealing the Father to you. The implication is that no one has both ascended to heaven to receive divine knowledge and then descended to earth to give that revelation on the same level that Yeshua is the incarnate word of God who has come from God to reveal the Father. The background of this saying is found in Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven you should say, who will go up to heaven and get it for us and make us hear it? that we may observe it See, the context is talking about going to heaven to receive divine knowledge and bringing it back down. No one needs to do this because Yeshua has revealed the father. He is saying no one's ascended to heaven and returned. So no one is qualified to speak about spiritual things as I am. This does not mean that no one had gone to heaven at that time. Now, as a general rule, believers, for the most part, didn't go to heaven until the resurrection at AD 70. They waited in Sheol. But Yahweh makes exceptions. And I don't think he's saying, I don't think he's talking about people being in heaven here. This is a preterist verse I've used for all of your sense of being a preterist. No one goes to heaven. No one goes to heaven. I thought this week, you know, I need to look at that context there, Okay. I jump. What in the world? Hang on a second. I totally lost where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) I have no clue. All right. There's the Deuteronomy passage. How did this happen? Where am I? Yeah, I know. I don't know. Okay, there we go. Let's go back to John. Phew. <laughs> all right, the background, as, as I said, of Yeshua saying here is, is in Deuteronomy. He's saying, you know, this is not a verse that he's, you know, in John here, trying to say, you know, nobody ever went to heaven. So I believe that Enoch walked with God and his faith pleased God so much that God just took him into the eternal realm. He just crossed from one realm to the next and all of a sudden, what happened to his body? I don't, I don't understand any of that stuff. But I do believe that he walked right through this world into the next. Into the realm of God and just, can you imagine? He's just walking along all of a sudden, unhindered fellowship. Right in the presence of God. How cool would that be? He was pleasing to God. Now think about this for a moment. Enoch pleases God. Think about Yeshua. He's sinless, he's spotless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners. And it was said of him, and he said of himself, I always do those things that please him. We understand that of Yeshua. Yet the Holy Spirit said this of Enoch, a man, like you, like me, just a man. This man pleased God. And let me tell you, people, this is a prevention from apostasy. You want to guard against apostasy? Walk with God. Enoch walked with him for 300 years. So how about you? Are you walking with Yahweh? Now, I'm not asking you if you're a Christian. I'm not asking you if you're saved. I'm asking, are you walking day to day with Yahweh? You say, well, how do you know? I think if you're doing it, you know. How do you know if you're walking in fellowship with anybody? How do you know when you really have that kind of fellowship? I think there should be some evidence of that fellowship, that communion that you have with the Father. Just to throw out a couple, I think gratitude, I think peace, and I think contentment would be just markers if you're in fellowship with the king of the universe. And I don't mean when things are going well. I don't mean when you're on vacation. I got a sense of peace. Oh, no kidding. You're on vacation. Everything's wonderful. You're going to go back home eventually though and it's all going to come tumbling down. Okay, I'm talking about when your life is falling apart, when you're in the midst of the storm and you have a peace, you have a contentment because you know who rules the storm. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Wow, what a verse for American Christianity. I mean, they have everything and they're still not content. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? When you're walking with the sovereign God of the universe, all is well. Paul taught us that. And it doesn't mean good circumstances. Paul was in a lot of lousy circumstances. It never took his joy away. He was always content. He was always at peace. He was always grateful. As a believer in Christ, do you meet with God? Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Do you spend time with him in his presence? When is the last time you just stop doing everything you normally do and just meditate? Just think about who he is. Think about what he's done for you. Meditate on some scripture. When is the last time you were in that place of continual fellowship where you just, you know, every decision was bounced off him first? That's what I love about David. Every time David did something, so I did. Yahweh, should I go to this, do this war? Yeah, but don't do it like you did last time. Go around the back this way. Know, I'm loving it. I'm like, I just, I'm jealous. I'm so jealous when I read those texts. I'm like, man, if I could just do that. Yahweh, should I do this? I'm like, <laughs> getting the Word of God. I've got to do it the tough way. All right? But I mean, you know, I don't know. Our Christianity has been so dumbed down to the point of it's like, we show up at church on Sunday, read a few verses during the week, and everything's good. No, it's continual fellowship, with Yahweh, day in, day out, every step you take, you're walking with Him. When you make a decision, you're consulting Him. When everything happens, you're praising Him, you're thanking Him for whatever it is. We pulled off the interstate last week, and just as I was pulling off it, I noticed the traffic was dead stop. I said, praise the Lord. Kathy goes, seriously, you're praising the Lord for that? I said, I'm seriously praising Him. I am. I hate traffic. I'm not a patient person, and I'm thanking Him that I don't have to sit in that. So, yes, I've been thanking him. I think we really should thank him for everything. We only thank him for things we like. I know that. If I got stuck in traffic, I should say thank you, Lord. Okay? I should be, we, I mean, that's really what, it's, what it should come down to. But I really suspect that 95% of the church that claims the name of Christ has no clue what it means to walk in fellowship with God. And I really think when you find someone who is really in tune with God, walking with Yahweh, fellowshipping with Yahweh, the church looks at him like, yeah, a little odd. Kind of a little bit of a freakish person there, you know? They're kind of a spiritual person. Like, that's something wrong, you know? Enoch walked with God. Twice it says it in this text. Enoch walked with God. He didn't have what we have as far as the Word of God. But obviously he had communion. Believers, I believe every one of us are called to be like Enoch and walk with God. What a huge contrast. I'm talking about apostates, and then he jumps to Enoch, and you're like, whoa. From, a, from people who are, you know, going to be judged by Yahweh to a man who is so pleasing that God's, come on, cross realms, you're coming with me. You know, life is so much better when you walk through it in fellowship with God. I mean, in everything you do, it's so much better. Because when you're in fellowship, nothing else matters. It really doesn't. And if we could understand that, get to that point, I saw the testimony of a man who was bedridden. I, he had, you know, couldn't do anything. He had a respirator, the whole thing. You know, I think he's able to move his eyes, and that, that was about it. But he tells his testimony about his fellowshipping day after day with God and his enjoyment of being in his presence. And I'm like, when Christians begin to really walk, this life in fellowship with Yahweh and express their Christianity through their lifestyle, they'll have an effect on the world in which they live. We don't like our world. We complain all the time about how messed mess this country is. Well, you want to fix it? Start walking with Yahweh as a believer. Let that spread. Let that catch on to other people because it is infectious. It is when you see something. You know, we, need, we all need those examples. When you see that example, you begin to follow and it will affect the world in which we live. Enoch, please God so much, he just took him. I wish I could do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Oh, Father, I continually pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. Let us never be satisfied. Let us never settle on an easy answer. May we dig, may we search, may we pour over the scriptures, Lord, that we might know you. And may it be the goal, the desire, the drive of our heart to know you and to make you known. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us, your love for us. Teach us, Lord, I pray. Amen.